Well, good morning. Uh, I have a, a quick clarification on uh, the announcements that uh, were made earlier. Uh, that growth groups, they don't start this week beginning tomorrow. They start the week of August 19th. You ever had that confusion of what do you mean by next week? Uh, is it the week after next or this week or that week? But uh, anyways, if you have your Bibles, please open up with me to, to Psalm 14, uh, where we will uh, conclude our study of the Psalms uh, for this summer. Uh, next week, we will jump back into the, the Gospel of John. Uh, and by this point in time, most of you have heard about the two shootings that took place last weekend. Uh, the first shooting took place in El Paso, Texas, uh, and uh, where uh, a young 21-year-old man from Dallas, motivated by hate, decided to drive 650 miles uh, over to El Paso, which is a, a border city uh, with Mexico. And he went into a, a Walmart, uh, and he opened fire, and he killed 22 people, and and wounded at least another 25. And then shortly after that, in Dayton, Ohio, about 1 o'clock in the morning on Sunday last week, a shooter opened fire uh, at a popular nightlife area uh, there in Dayton. Uh, And the police opened fire on him and killed him within a minute from when he began to shoot. But within that first minute... He was able to, to kill nine people and wound another 26. That's two shootings, 31 people dead and 50 wounded. It seems like these types of tragedies are steadily increasing and becoming more and more frequent in our nation. And as they become more frequent, it's interesting to see our nation try to come to grips with them. Right, so some basic questions that we try and answer about these tragedies. And they are tragedies. We need to, to weep and, and mourn and pray for those who have been impacted by such violence. But if you look on social media, if you turn on any news television station, our nation can't agree about what is causing this steady rise in these violent shootings. They can't agree. Many different uh, answers are proposed. Some propose that the root cause of of this is uh, just a lack of gun control laws. And so because they believe that's the cause, the solution that they put forth is that we need more, more laws controlling guns. So others say that we should probe a little bit deeper and say, well, we need to to look at the motivation behind these things. What is is motivating young men? And and the majority of these shootings are committed by young men who are angry and frustrated. So some people say, hey, the the root cause of this is violence in movies and television shows and, and video games. And they say also that, that social media is fracturing us uh, as a society. Uh, and it's creating loneliness uh, and isolation among people. It's ironically called social media, right? And I think those who are saying that we need to probe deeper, that we need to, to get to the root of this problem, I think they're on the right track. 
Because if you're going to try and solve any problem, the first thing you have to, to figure out is what is it that is creating the problem, right? Uh, if you go in to, to see the doctor, you say, hey, my arm hurts. He's going to try and get to the, to the root cause. It's a bad doctor that just gives you pain medicine. Okay, well, I'm not going to worry about what's causing it. I'm just going to make the, the pain go away. Like, no, what, what's the issue, doc? And a doctor who, who comes to an incorrect diagnosis will naturally also prescribe an incorrect treatment. Or if you take your car into an auto mechanic and the mechanic can't quite figure out where the trouble is, he's not going to be able to, to order the right parts or make the right repair. It all begins with his ability to assess what is taking place, where the issue lies. And if we were going to solve this issue... We're going to try and answer the, the question of what is going wrong with our society that these violent attacks are on an increase. We have to, to get to the, the issue at hand, the, the root of the problem. But our society will never do that successfully. You know why? Because they don't have the right view of who we are as people. Who we are as individuals. Because if you, if you get that wrong of, of who we are as persons, you're never going to have the right solution because you're misidentifying the problem. And as we come to Psalm 14 this morning, it's a fitting psalm for this time in our nation. Because Psalm 14 is both a psalm of lament, a psalm of crying out to God for understanding. And it's also what's known as a a wisdom psalm, a psalm that is intended to instruct us and to teach us something. What we're going to see that in this psalm is that David is lamenting the wickedness of his own time. He's, He's lamenting the fact that there are foolish men who reject God and attack and abuse others. And this has led David to study and to contemplate what is going on with humanity. What's going on with people. And this psalm shows us the divinely inspired conclusions that he comes to concerning the nature of man. When we look at this psalm together, beginning uh, in the title, it's to the choir master of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. And as we come to this study of human nature, this study of fools, you could call it, 
We see that the words of David, but we're going to see that this study is still up to date. It's not outdated. It's not, hey, that was just describing people in David's time, the 10th century B.C. No, this is still very true for 21st century A.D. in the world that we live in. What we see in David's inspired words this morning are inspired, timeless truths. We're being instructed concerning the natural state of all people at all times and across all cultures. We are seeing the nature of man here in Psalm 14 this morning. And what conclusions did David come to in his study of fools? Well, if you were to look at Psalm 14, as this is, this is David's uh, report. He's been studying and meditating upon human nature contemplating and this is the report he's going to give to us inspired by the holy spirit you could divide his report his conclusions into two different parts the first would be an assessment of humanity's foolishness this is in verses one through six and then in verse seven he changes his course a little bit and he he makes an appeal for heaven's deliverance but let's look first at, at verses one through six as david says hey here's my assessment of humanity's foolishness. This is who we are as people. And this portion of David's assessment can, can be broken down further into three different sections. In verse 1, we're going to see David's own thoughts, his own human observation of somebody he's going to call the fool. If you look at me at verse 1, it says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds, and there is none who does good. And so we're introduced at the very beginning of this psalm, but th- this this statement, the words of a fool. This is what the fool says in his heart, and it's literally that God is non-existent. God is not. And this is not necessarily something that has to be spoken outwardly, because where is it spoken? Where is it said? In his heart. See, having this thought, this attitude within your own heart uh, can be present and just as condemning and dangerous as whether it is spoken outwardly. Parents, that's something to, to understand even as you shepherd your own children. That them not necessarily saying something out loud doesn't mean that it's taking place in their heart. And we have to also note that when David makes this statement about the fool... He's not saying anything about the fool's intelligence. Sometimes we like to think of the fool as somebody who's like mentally uh, not, not all there, or doesn't rightly understand things, and, and of, of low intelligence. But this says nothing at all about the fool's intelligence. You can indeed be highly intelligent and highly foolish. Those are not mutually exclusive. Indeed, we have many people who are very intelligent and very, very foolish. This is not... An intellectual description, it is a moral description. And that people say in their heart, there is no God. That is a moral decision. This tells us about the fool's attitude towards God, that the fool has a hardened heart and a deceived mind. We see that that is what makes somebody a fool, is that he has no desire for a relationship with God. That is the root of foolishness, to say God doesn't exist and I want no part of him. That is the height of folly. What we also see is that our heart always directs our feet. 
That our, whatever's going on in our heart is going to lead us in a direction. And if the fool is saying in his heart that there is no God, where are his feet going to naturally begin to walk? He's going to begin to live according to that thesis statement of his life. That God doesn't exist, so it doesn't matter what I do. And we see that in the second part of verse 1. David shifts from the singular to the plural. Right? He said the fool, singular, but now it's, he's talking about a plurality of fools. They. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. The idea of being corrupt implies a devastation of morals. Now, your moral compass has been shattered. No comprehension of right and wrong. And that idea of abominable points to participating in any element of idolatry. And it's used frequently in the Old Testament. First Kings twenty one twenty six says he acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 18.9 says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. Don't fall into idolatry. So what we see here, David's observation about the fool, is that the, the fool is guilty of outward sin and also inward idolatry. <clears throat> so David has gone from the, the singular fools, and now he's speaking of a plurality of fools, and then he makes it even bigger. He makes a larger, all-encompassing statement. He says, There is none who does good. Now David isn't just looking at a, a single person or a group of people in Israel. He's speaking about everyone. Speaking about you and me again across all people, all times, all cultures. He's saying, There is no one who does good. And now some of you may immediately say, Hey, I know I've done some good in my life. I've taken out the trash. I've done the dishes. I've, you know, but, but that's not what this is talking about. When David says there is none who does good, he's not saying that nobody at any point in time has ever done anything to benefit somebody else. No, that, that's not what David is saying. What David is saying is that there are none who are naturally and intrinsically good. There is nobody who is perfect. We're going to see this expanded upon whose whose heart pursues the Lord. There's nobody who is that way. And so with these words, David has gradually expanded what he is saying, and he's now implicated all of us. That we are guilty before the Lord. That we are guilty of sin. That none of us is good. One pastor and commentator, Peter Craigie's, uh, defined foolishness and the fool in this way. He says, The fool is one whose life is lived without direction or acknowledgement of God. Thus, the precise opposite of fool and folly is not wise man and wisdom. The opposite of folly in the wisdom literature, meaning Proverbs and Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Job, the opposite of folly in the wisdom literature is loving kindness. That is to say, the fool is defined by the absence of loving kindness, which in turn is the principal characteristic of the relationship of the covenant between God and man. That the fool lives as if there were no covenant, 
and thus as if there were no God. And last week, as we, as we looked at Psalm 13, what we saw that David said that he trusted in the steadfast love of the Lord. That's that word that is the opposite of foolishness. The fool doesn't live according to any standard. He doesn't live as if he's in any type of relationship with God or man. Just does whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Demonstrated by covenant unfaithfulness. The fool is the opposite of God. You might say, well, well, Thomas, give me a better picture. Give me a better description. What does that look like? Well, Isaiah 32, 6 says this. For the fool speaks folly. And his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of drink. It's a great single verse picture of what a fool is. But if you want a a fuller picture of what it looks like to be a fool of what this psalm is talking about, turn with me over to, to 1 Samuel 25. First Samuel 25, you probably will have a heading in your, your Bible to the effect of David and Abigail. You probably have the, the death of Samuel in verse 1 and then uh, transitions into the story about David and Abigail. Well, well who, we know who David is. Who, who is Abigail? Well, so David and his men are, are been on the run from King Saul and they've been, spent some time in, in an area called Carmel. Uh, and while they've been in Carmel... Uh, they have kind of been living off of the land, and there's a man who lives there, and his, this man's name is Nabal, uh, and his wife's name is Abigail. Uh, and so David and his men have been there for some time, uh, and they have been looking after and making sure that nobody comes and takes of Nabal's property. None of his flocks have been uh, taken, or any portion of his flocks have been taken for food. And David is there, and this is with his army. They haven't gone and plundered him. And so, so David decides to send one of his young men and say, Hey, go ask Nabal, go up to this estate and go ask them for some supplies, for some food, some water. Says, Hey, we've been here. Uh, we haven't taken anything from you. And in fact, we've been protecting your property. Now, would you show us some favor and, and send us some food and some water? And the, the young man goes and speaks with Nabal. And, and Nabal scoffs at him and sends him away says, who is David? I don't need to feed that guy. If I, if I fed every rebel against the king, what, would I, what trouble would I get into? Hey, so, so how did Nabal return the faithfulness of David? He says, huh, you, you've been a benefit to me. I'm going to rebuke that. And he insults David as the, the young man is on his way out. And so the word comes back to David and David says to his men, all right, guys, here we go. We're going to go pillage this guy's house. He's going to disrespect me in that way. It's over for him. So they're getting ready to go and plunder Nabal's house. But then there's Nabal's wife, Abigail. She hears about this from another servant, and she says, oh, he did what? Okay, so she sends uh, to her servants, and they prepare provisions for 200 men. And she sprints to go to the road that David is going to take to come and destroy her house. And she meets David on the way and says, Hey, I realize I've heard what my husband said and did to you. And if you look at 1 Samuel 25, verse 23, 
This is the interaction that, that takes place between Abigail and David. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, let be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he, Nabal. Is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. So kind, loving words of a wife, right? My husband's a fool. That's literally what, what his name means. Nabal in Hebrew is the word for fool. She says, my husband's a fool. Please don't, don't count this against him. But, but what we see here is the exact picture of what a fool looks like, of covenant unfaithfulness. David has been faithful to him, cared for him, been kind to him. And what is the response of Nabal in, in return? To turn that on its head, to reject it, to return evil for good. And that is what we see, the very the root of unbelief and rejection of God is the very root of foolishness. Atheism is the epitome of foolishness. Uh, and if you think of uh, what the atheist does, he rejects everything that God has already given to him. What has God given to us? Oh, just life and breath and everything else is what Acts 17 says. What have I to be thankful for? Well, everything. And we, the atheist rejects that and says, no, God doesn't exist. I won't be accountable to him. And this is the, the height of foolishness. Additionally, what we see makes it even more foolish because Scripture makes it clear that God has revealed himself. You can't look at the world around us and say, I don't think God exists. You, like People say that, but Scripture kind of takes that argument away like, no, no, that, that really doesn't make sense. That is the, the, the height of a, of a clear denial. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2 say, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Romans 1 echoes this same truth, verses 18 to 22. The Apostle Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools. And that, that is the definition of foolishness. To, to look around and say, yeah, God doesn't exist when everything in the creation screams that God does exist. Now, I've, I've never heard uh, a person who denied the existence of their earthly parents. Have you guys ever met somebody that denied the existence of their earthly parents? No, because the fact that this person is here in front of you, what does that naturally imply? That they came from somewhere. <laughs> that somebody brought them into being. 
Uh, and yet we, we look at the creation around us and say, that, that just popped, popped into existence. Nobody made that. Yes, it's very orderly and, and governed by a whole bunch of laws and, and rules, but that's all by chance. We can all scoff now. <laughs> because that's the, that's the irrationality of that thought. Of saying, how can you look at all of this and then say that there is no God? David's point and the Apostle Paul's point are one and the same. That unbelief is foolish because God's existence is so obvious. And if God's existence is so obvious, it makes unbelief not a matter of, you know, an intellectual issue or you need to be convinced. It, as Derek Kidner, another pastor and commentator, says that the assertion that there is no God is in fact treated in Scripture not as a sincere if misguided conviction. Not a misguided conviction, but as an irresponsible gesture of defiance. So we need to see and understand unbelief to be. If something is so obvious and you're going to deny that it's true, that you're, you are in denial. And you are outright rejecting what is plain and obvious to see. And this is also where we could easily get defensive. Because again, David and later the Apostle Paul, they are accusing us. David, what'd you call me? They, they are accusing us of being in rebellion against God. They are accusing us of being sinful to our core. And in our self-righteousness, we could have this tendency to defend ourselves, saying, hey, David, I'm really not that bad. You don't know me. If you only knew the good that I do. But then if we, we look at verses 2 and 3, the Lord is going to chime in on this debate. He's going to say something. So we, verse 1, we had a personal or a human evaluation, human observation of the fool. In verses 2 and 3, we're going to have a, a heavenly evaluation of the fool. If you look with me at those verses, we see that the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So what we see in these verses is the Lord from heaven affirming what David has just said. You see the the echoes of what God says to what David says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God looks down from heaven and he gazes upon every soul on the earth to look and to see if there is anybody who understands or literally if there's anybody who acts wisely and who seeks after God, who searches and wants to know God. And God's conclusion after searching the hearts of all people, not just the hearts of the atheists, searches the hearts of all people, this is the conclusion that God comes to. That rather than pursuing God, people have all turned aside together and they have become corrupt. They have gone their own way. And then that word for corrupt is a different Hebrew word than what we saw earlier. And the word for corrupt here is the idea of spoiled milk. Anybody like to drink spoiled milk? Anybody poured spoiled milk onto their cereal and then mourned the loss of their cereal? Uh, right? You find out afterwards, like, oh, if I had just smelled it first. Uh, but, but that's the idea here. When the milk is spoiled, do you want to drink any part of it? No. You know, like, I'll just pour a little bit on the corner of my cereal uh, and, and I'll, t- I'll take out the chunks. Uh, and then let the, the rest of it, I'll pour that on the No, you don't do that. And that's the idea here, that God's evaluation of us, 
as men, as women, as humanity, is that we have all become corrupt. We have all turned sour. That sin has tainted every part of our being. It's impacted our, our thoughts, our desires, our decisions, what we love, what we hate. All of that has been tainted by sin. In our natural state, sin has devastated every part of us. And not only does God echo what David has said and puts his seal of approval on it, God goes one step further. He he makes one last emphatic statement that David does not. It's at the end of verse 3. So David had gone so far as to say, there is none who does good. And God echoes that in verse 3. But then he adds that last little statement, not even one. What God says is there are no exceptions to this. That we have all turned aside from Him. We have all rebelled against God. We have all become corrupt. We are all spoiled. Those are convicting words, are they not? They pierce our hearts deeply, or they should. Because this is how God sees us. Now, sometimes we build up our own expectations and our own view of ourselves But again, this is where we need to trust and see that God's word helps us to see ourselves rightly. And this is how we all stand before God in our natural state. Like, well, that's pretty hopeless. Yeah, it is. But you you also begin to notice, if we read carefully, that within this psalm, there seemed to be a little bit of discrepancy. So God, you're saying on the one hand, everybody is corrupt. Everybody is spoiled milk. But then... In verse 4, God spoke of a group who was my people. And in verse 5, he says that there is a generation of the righteous. In verse 6, he speaks of the poor, those who are afflicted and humble. All of those point to the reality that even though across humanity all people are sinful, there is somehow, some way, a people of God that God views as being righteous before him. So the question is, how do I get into that group, right? How do, how do I be a part of that? What we're going to see is that this psalm implies that if you want to be a part of that, if you want to be considered as a part of God's people, there's nothing that you can do to get in. It's not, a, I'm just going to earn my way because no, you're, again, you're spoiled milk. You can't go and make it into that on your own. God brings you there. That is how that happens. This is what what other passages of Scripture would would inform about this. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul, building upon the theology of the Old Testament, says, hey, we were all spiritually dead. We were all in rebellion against God. We were all considered children of wrath. That is what Paul says. But then he he adds this. This is the, the greatest singular word 
in the Bible. That little word, but, in verse 4 of Ephesians 2. You were dead, you were in rebellion, you were a child of wrath, but God did something. Ephesians 2.4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amen. So I, I love the song that we sang this morning. His mercy is more. I love that. And this is what we need to understand, that we are all spoiled milk. We are all sinful and tainted. But the grace of God, the mercy of God is greater than our sin. And because it is greater, He works and acts upon us to save us. Because all people are dead in their sins, we only have life if God, in His love and in His mercy, makes us alive together with Christ, as we see here in Ephesians 2. Because we are naturally hard-hearted. We are naturally fools. We only become righteous if God makes us so in Christ. Another passage that I absolutely love. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the, the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Man, that's, that wraps me up and condemns me. Because I'm all a, a part of that. That, that, per, that describes me to the T. But then Paul goes on and says, And such were some of you. Past tense, you were that way, but you were washed. You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that is the beauty and the glory of the Gospel. That God takes we who were completely in rebellion against Him, we who were completely corrupt, and He transforms us into the image of His Son. And now we have new thoughts, new desires, and we want to become like Christ. And we want to worship God for who He is and all that He has done for us. He gives us new life. Praise God for that. And as if you can maybe notice, I get excited when I think about that. When I, when I speak about that, I can't help but have a little bit of excitement in my voice because I am so thankful for what God has done. And, and there may be some here who are just get just as excited as I am. Look, look out, doesn't see a whole lot of excitement out there. But uh, it's okay. You may be internally excited. But there, there may be others here this morning where this is, this is new to you. This contemplation of your own sinfulness. This contemplation of, of how far you have gone in your rebellion against a holy God. Again, who has given you life and breath and everything. And if that's you t- this morning, if, if, you're, if you're hearing for the first time, or maybe it's just now beginning to make sense of your own sinfulness before God. Yes, that is the, that is the bad news. And we need to understand the bad news if we're going to really appreciate the good news of the gospel, that Christ has died for our sins, that we can be forgiven and cleansed and made new if we look to Christ in faith, if we acknowledge our sinfulness and say, God, I can't make it into your people. Will you bring me in? Will you make me a part of your family? I trust not in myself, but in the work of Christ on the cross. I trust that Christ... Not only died for my sins, but that He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scriptures predicted. I would urge you all to look to Christ in faith today. 
That is what we are urged to do throughout the Scriptures. And that is what we see implied here in this psalm. That all people are condemned, but there are some whom the Lord shows grace to. There are some who are counted as His people. What we have seen, we've seen David's own observation. We've seen God's evaluation of the fool. And then we see there's a a continuing description of what the fool is like. Verses 4 through 6. We see this this detailed description of the fool. Uh, And and these verses are very difficult to to translate and understand in the Hebrew. Uh, And it's demonstrated, if you you look at different English translations of these verses especially, there's a bunch of different translations of of key words. And what does it mean? Uh, The vocabulary and the grammar are are difficult to, to sort through. But... There's some things there on your outline. I'd just like to, to run through really quickly. Of, paint us a, a more thorough picture of the fool and of what we ourselves are naturally. If left to our own devices, this is what we would be. You see that, that first, at the beginning of verse 14, that the fool lacks a knowledge of God. Verse 4 begins with a question. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. But that first beginning question of have they no knowledge? They refers to all the evildoers, all of the fools. And knowledge in the Bible is fundamentally relational. It's not just something that is an abstract fact uh, to know someone is to know not just facts about them, but to be acquainted with them personally, to have experience with them, uh, and to relationally understand who they are. If you read through the, the book of Ezekiel, you see this phrase uh, popping up over and over again, where Ezekiel writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, and then they will know that I am the Lord, in the covenant name of God. They will know that I am Yahweh. Like over and over again, like, God, this is Israel. Don't they already know you? Uh, And the point is, no, they don't. They don't have an experiential knowledge of God, but they will. And they're going to get to know God because God's going to bring judgment upon them. The bad part. But then he's also promises restoration in uh, the book of Ezekiel. But they will know the Lord. And this phrase is repeated over and over again in Ezekiel. And David's point here is those who do evil those who are the fools as defined here all of humanity we are naturally have no knowledge of god and not having this knowledge not having this relational understanding of who god is then leads us to to again act upon that Uh, our character will drive our conduct Uh, and if we say that god doesn't exist or we don't know him we're going to live accordingly So we see first that the the fool has no knowledge of God. Secondly, he devours the people of God. This is in that middle portion of verse 4. This is all the evildoers who eat up my peoples as they eat bread. Because the fool lacks knowledge, he lacks understanding, he treats the people of God as if they're no different than the food that he consumes. So he attacks them and devours them according to his own discretion and pleasure. And yet even worse than how the fool devours other people is the way that he treats God the very end of verse 4, what does the fool not do? He does not call upon the Lord. That phrase of does not call, it's a, it's a technical uh, phrase of worship. Hey, the fool does not worship God. And you're like, yeah, well, we've already established that because he says that there is no God. But in the Old Testament, this is the, the height of, again, foolishness and 
And folly to call upon the Lord is to worship Him. The, the fool refuses to acknowledge God's existence, to call upon God and worship, and he attempts to suppress the truth about God. But there's an interesting paradox here. We see it in verse 5. So on the one hand, the fool says that there is no God. God is not. But then, if you look at verse 5, how does verse 5 begin? What is it that characterizes the fool? That they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. The other thing we see is that the, the fool lives in fear of God. And this is that, that paradox. On the one hand, he, he says that God doesn't exist, but then on the other hand, uh, he knows that there is something beyond him. He knows that God does exist. And in, deep down in his heart, in his soul, he knows that God is real. And that weighs upon him. It leads him to, to be fearful. It leads him to have a, a guilty conscience. This is amazing in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. Now, as, as God is revealing himself in judgment and pouring out these plagues upon the land, it, what's fascinating is that the people on the earth at that point in time, they acknowledge that it's God who's doing that. But what do they not do? They don't repent. They say, hey, look, God is doing all of these things. I'm just going to go run in terror to a cave. That, that's what I'm going to do. And this is where we see this, this discrepancy within the fool's thoughts, within uh, the, the atheist's way of viewing the world. On the one hand, they deny the existence of God, and yet at the very same time, they are afraid and oftentimes very angry at the God they say does not exist. But, but here's something to keep in mind. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this, that he, speaking of God, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. No matter what people say, if I don't believe this or all of that, everybody knows that there is something beyond this life. Everybody has that, that feeling within them because God has put that within them. We all know there is something beyond this existence on earth and God has put that there as a testimony about himself so regardless of what they proclaim with their mouths everybody knows that God exists that there is something beyond this life we see this paradox and then we also see something else regarding the fool that he also shames the people of God it's the beginning of verse 6 that you would shame the plans of the poor the, the idea of the poor points to those who are afflicted, those who are in need of assistance. And it's not merely a reference to those who are, have an economic standing of, of needing or wanting, but it speaks of spiritual neediness uh, because it says that God is his refuge. That the fool attacks the people of God. If he can't devour them, then he will try and put them to shame regarding their faith, regarding their humility before the Lord. But then last and certainly not least, what we see about the fool is that he is blind to his defeat. That's the scene at the end of verse 5 and the end of verse 6. So they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. It says, but the Lord is his refuge at the end of verse 6. That what the, the fool be, does not contemplate and comprehend is that God is on the side of his people. And that God will go to bat for his people. And if that is the case, and the, and the fool, the evildoer, is acting against God's people, 
And he is at odds not only with God's people, but also with God. You've all seen those uh, signs on fences uh, on residential neighborhoods. It says, beware of dog. Right? I love what one, one pastor said. Of, we, we need signs that say, beware of sheep. Like, what? Well, because it, what he says is that uh, we need to understand that if you mess with the sheep of God, the shepherd's eventually going to come. Uh, and those who are attacking God's people will eventually have to deal with their God. I love that. And that is what we see here, that God is with the generation of the righteous, and he is the refuge of the poor. That is what that the fool does not comprehend and see. But what we see in, in these first six verses of this song, this assessment of humanity, what we see here, this, this truth that we are all sinful, we are all spoiled milk, this gives us an advantage in our day and our time, in our culture. Because we can answer that question that the world is struggling to come to grips with. Why are these acts of violence taking place? What is driving people to do these outbursts? Sin in the human heart. That, that, is, that is all of us. Right? If, if we were brutally honest, we have all felt like going and having some type of huge outburst, right? Whether that's within our own home, uh, just an outburst of anger of what is happening? Yeah, when we have those little outbursts of anger, that is, that is the same. We're on the same trajectory as those who do those mass shootings. An outburst of anger. That's what we need to see and understand. It's what this passage shows us. That except for the grace of God, we would be along that same trajectory. We understand why these tragedies take place because the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. And then he begins to live according to what he has said, what he has believed in his soul. And show us that sin and evil are bound up in the heart of man. And this doesn't mean that all people are as wicked as they they could be, because again, not everybody is going and, and shooting up everybody else. Praise the Lord. But these verses show us that we are all rebellious against a holy God. And that becomes David's reflection in the last portion of this psalm, in the second part of his report in verse 7. He's made his assessment of humanity, and then he, he makes an appeal for heaven's deliverance. Verse 7, he says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. David concludes this psalm as he's reflecting upon the, the sinfulness of humanity, on his own sinfulness and all of the sin that he sees around him. What does that reflection drive him to do? It leads him to pray. It leads him to pray first for salvation for his own nation, for his own generation. He prays for the deliverance from the foolishness of the world around him. Indeed, that is one way that this psalm instructs us on how we're to pray. That as we look at the foolishness around us, that we understand that this is the root cause is because you've said that there is no God. When we see that foolishness, sometimes we are tempted to do what? Well, we're tempted to elevate ourselves and to look down upon others and say, man, those people are just so bad and so wicked. We puff ourselves up. But again, what do we need to understand? 
We, we were exactly like them. So we can pray for deliverance from the foolishness of the world around us, but we also need to pray for salvation for those fools. We need to pray for the salvation of those who are convinced in their own hearts that there is no God. Because we know that that's not true. They know that they are uh, deceiving themselves and bringing judgment upon themselves in the future. And we also need to remember this, that you and I are fools who have been saved. We are fools. We are those who have, at one point in time in our lives, we have rejected God. We have gone our own way. We have been those who commit abominable deeds. And again, that should not... That should humble us rather than puffing us up. And that should show us our desperate need for Christ. The Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 3, as he's making his, his grand explanation, his grand case for the sinfulness of mankind, he quotes these verses in, in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. We won't turn there now, but, but Paul goes there and says all of humanity is sinful before God, and he goes to this exact passage. This passage is intended to have a, a, a remembering effect upon us, to show us where we have come from. It's a great story about uh, Bear Bryant, uh, the, the coach for the uh, Alabama Crimson Tide uh, in ages past. In 1979, the, the University of Alabama was playing uh, against Penn State in the Sugar Bowl. Uh, and Penn State going into that game was undefeated and ranked number one. And Alabama with one loss was ranked number two. So this bowl game was going to be, in essence, a national championship game. And Alabama won the game 14-7. And the night after the game, some Alabama fans were, were having a party in the hotel suite of the legendary coach. And at that coach, or at the party, Coach Bryant was wearing a new t-shirt. And one of the guests noticed that the shirt had a hole in it. And the guest pointed it out to Coach Bryant, and the coach's response was this, Yeah, I know. I always tear a small hole in my t-shirt, so I'll never forget where I came from. So no matter the success that he had, the acclaim that he received, Bryant apparently felt that it was vital that he never forgot where he came from, from a small farming town in Morrow Bottom, Arkansas. You ever heard of Morrow Bottom? Anybody? But Bear Bryant went out of his way to remind himself on a regular basis where he came from. And that's what we see here in Psalm 14. This is intended to remind us where we come from. Of what God has brought about in our life because that was me. I was in rebellion against God. I was at odds with Him. Hateful of Him and hostile toward others. And that needs to break our own hearts and humble us. And it also needs to drive us to our knees in prayer, not only for ourselves, but for our nation. May the Lord be gracious to us and save us. May salvation come to us. May the Lord restore the fortunes of his people, not just bring judgment. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you, you sit enthroned above us. And you look down upon us. And there is nothing hidden from your sight. 
Lord, you know the deepest, darkest recess of our souls. You know our greatest sins and you know the smallest sins that we don't even realize that we are committing. Lord, you see all of it. And your wisdom, your ability to see through and know all things has led you to the right conclusion that we are indeed corrupt and we have indeed gone astray. And Lord, we praise you and thank you that while we were astray, while we were in rebellion against you, going our own way, that you acted to save us by sending your Son. And Lord, you have demonstrated your love by crucifying him. By putting all of our sins upon him on the cross. Lord Jesus, you have demonstrated your love for us in bearing that sin. Bearing that shame. Bearing our guilt. Lord, may we see our sinfulness clearly today and every day. May we acknowledge that we are still those who sin against you on a regular basis. And that our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before you. That our best prayers are still stained with sin. Our tears of repentance are still impure. Our confessions of sin are still wrong in so many ways. Lord, we need to see our sin. Lord, we need you to continue to work in us, to humble us, to cleanse us, to drive sin from our hearts, because we still battle with it each and every day. So Lord, may you be gracious to us. May you continue to draw us near to yourself. May you continue to to mold us and shape us into the image of your Son. Lord, we long to be like Jesus. We long to have the stain of sin removed from us. And Lord, as we come to grips with this stain of sin, not only on our own hearts, but upon the hearts of all people, Lord, may we never be be driven to become prideful. May we never think that we are better than anybody else. But Lord, may our hearts break for the world. May our hearts be heavy for the lost around us and may we go to them with the good news, with the burden-lifting, sin-forgiving message of the Son of God dying for sinners. And Lord, we thank you for your word. It's encouragement this morning. And we pray that you would help us to praise you and thank you for all that you have done in our lives. May we praise and bless your holy name. Amen.